Hi, I'm Damon Fairless, host of Hunting Warhead from CBC Podcasts and the Norwegian newspaper VG. Hunting Warhead follows a global team of police and journalists as they attempt to dismantle a massive network of predators on the dark web. Winner of the grand prize for best investigative reporting at the New York festivals and recommended by The Guardian, Vulture, and The Globe and Mail, you can find Hunting Warhead on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hello, I'm Brent Bambury. This is Day 6. The deadliest year on record for Palestinians across the occupied West Bank. Most Palestinian deaths have been linked to Israeli forces. Torturing Palestinians, dehumanizing Palestinian detainees. Thousands have been forced from their homes. And they have nowhere to go. While war wages in Gaza, violence increases in the West Bank. That's coming up on Day 6. Today... A Thousand Pages of Barbara. Extremely bright, very direct, very blunt. The Streisand memoir is out, but should you read it? AI is coming for democracy. Opening the door for a lot more AI use in a lot of elections. How AI is already disrupting elections and what it means for Canada. And transcending space and time, Scott Pilgrim is back. The DNA of Scott Pilgrim is, is Toronto. An anime series brings back Canada's most famous slacker, all today on Day 6, the Hoser Supervillains from Subspace Edition. For six weeks, the world's attention has been focused on the deadly violence in Israel and Gaza. But as it drags on, violence is spilling out into the occupied West Bank. Part of the rage that many Israelis feel quite understandably about October 7 is being taken out by settlers on Palestinian civilians in the West Bank. About 700,000 Israelis live in settlements in the West Bank. The settlements are built and supported by the Israeli government. They're considered illegal under international law and by many countries around the world, including Canada. According to the United Nations, nearly 200 Palestinians, including 46 children, have been killed in the West Bank since October 7th, the vast majority by Israeli forces. The UN also says more than 800 Palestinians have been forcibly displaced by settler violence and increased restrictions on their movement. To appeal as a matter of urgency for Israeli authorities to take immediate measures, to take steps to ensure the protection of Palestinians in the West Bank. Violence and tension in the West Bank were on the rise even before the attacks on October 7th. According to the UN, last year was the deadliest for Palestinians living in the West Bank since it started systematically tracking deaths there nearly 20 years ago. And people who monitor the situation are getting increasingly worried about where things might be heading. Jessica Montel is the executive director of Hamoked, a human rights group assisting Palestinians living under Israeli occupation. She is in Jerusalem. Jessica, welcome to Day 6. Thank you. Hello. Your organization, Hamoked, has a hotline for Palestinians in need. Tell me about the calls that you've been getting since October 7th and how they've changed. Yes. So uh, we are answering, you know, all year long phone calls from Palestinians needing our assistance. And a big portion of those calls are people whose loved ones have been arrested. And people also contact us about what I call the permit bureaucracy of occupation. I mean, Palestinians need a permit for so many basic functions of daily life. And then people are asking us to help them get those permits. But starting, you know, after the Hamas attack on October 7th, I mean, definitely the volume of calls has tripled and quadrupled. 
primarily from families looking for their loved ones. You've had mass arrests of Palestinians in the West Bank. So people are frantic to find where their loved ones are being held. That's a lot of the calls. For Gazans, there's been a complete resistance to provide any information. We've petitioned the high court, but the response from everyone has been very hostile. I mean, even the judges, a habeas corpus petition is something that the courts would treat very seriously. I mean, you're not supposed to be holding a person without telling their family where the person is being held. But in these days, The hostility to anything related to uh, human rights of people in Gaza is palpable, and that hostility is manifest in the courts as well. And some of that hostility appears to have been articulated in the West Bank since October 7th. Can you, as you monitor the, the evolving situation there, what have you specifically seen in terms of the relationships between Israeli settlers and the Palestinians who, who also live in the West Bank since October 7th? Well, the whole country is in shock and mourning. And for a lot of people, that also translates into rage and desire for revenge. So a lot of violence in the course of arrests, uh, all sorts of humiliations against Palestinians who are being arrested, and also the violence by settlers. But in fact, the violence by settlers is very strategic. It's not uncontrolled rage and grief. It seems more like capitalizing on the opportunity to be forcibly displacing Palestinian communities from areas like South Mount Hebron or the Jordan Valley, where they have always been trying to push Palestinians out of those areas. The Palestinian population is very vulnerable now. And then you have whole communities that have just packed up and left because of the violence from settlers. Why do you believe the actions of the settlers is more deliberate and opportunistic this time? I mean, this past year, we have had the most extremist, religious, fundamentalist, blatantly racist government in power. Uh, This phenomenon that people call the hilltop youth of these violent settlers, those people are members of Knesset now. They have a legitimacy and access, and they are very explicit about what their ideology is. I mean, we see with the reoccupation of Gaza, they are already articulating it as a reestablishment of settlements. Gaza is part of the land of Israel. I mean, that dangerous rhetoric. And also in the West Bank, that this is the land of Israel, uh, this belongs to us exclusively. And then violence is a way of advancing that Jewish supremacist ideology. Also, it's not only settlers. I mean, the Israeli military and the Israeli government have all along been taking measures to restrict Palestinians. And we see that even more forcefully since October 7th. Some of the calls that Hamuked has gotten over the past month, we are supporting Palestinian farmers who have farmlands on the other side of the separation wall. And these people need special permits and they have to only pass through gates that the Israeli military opens in the separation wall to access their farmlands. But starting on October 7th, all of those gates have remained closed 
And then you have statements from Minister of Finance, who also is in charge of civilian matters in the West Bank, Bitzalel Smutrich, also who comes from this really most extreme religious fanatic fringe, but it's not a fringe when he is uh, central in this government, has declared that Palestinians should not, there should be no olive harvest in the West Bank. These are people who all year, their income is dependent on the harvest of their olive groves. Mm-hmm. Now, Palestinians have no access to those areas and are they have, you know, maybe a week or two left if they are going to be able to harvest before they lose their crops So it would be wrong to understand it as just this sort of fringe of violent settlers. I mean, it's a a spectrum of military decisions, government decisions, and then the settler violence that are all serving to advance dispossession of Palestinians and Jewish privilege. But all of the Palestinians who are affected by this do have leadership in the Palestinian Authority. The PA is officially in charge of the West Bank. Why isn't the Palestinian Authority able to do more to protect its people? I mean, it's a very long, painful conversation, but they have terrible leadership, uh, undemocratic, authoritarian The Palestinian Authority is working very closely with the Israeli military, preventing attacks against settlers. It's a leadership that is uh, repressive against its own population and also complicit in maintaining the occupation. Jessica, before October 7th, there was a huge mobilization of Israelis against the current government. And right now, Israel's at war. But when this conflict comes to an end, Do you think there will be opportunities for organizations like Hamoket, or do you think it's possible things will get worse? You know, we are all afraid to raise our head. Uh, Hamoket is treading very carefully, as I said, even in the courts, because in this climate, fear is manifest everywhere. And at the same time, I think the overwhelming majority of Israelis understand the colossal failure of our government. I mean, they did not protect us on October 7th and have responded completely incompetently since. I mean, there is a rage brewing on the part of wide sectors. I mean, the thought that this fanatic extremist leadership is managing the war is also terrifying. They do not have the best interests of Israelis at stake. So, Certainly, if they manage to stay in power until the day after the war, I would hope that all of the voices of the democracy camp in its broadest sense would join together to be building, you know, the leadership that Israelis deserve. Jessica Montel, thank you very much for being with us. Thank you. Jessica Montel is the executive director of the Israeli human rights group, Hamoked. Here are some other stories we're keeping an eye on this weekend. Was so much panic, so much, uh, so many earthquakes. I survived three volcanoes, three earthquakes before, and this is uh, the the biggest one. Thousands of earthquakes shook the small fishing village of Grindavik in Iceland this week, and experts fear a volcanic eruption is now imminent. Nearly 4,000 people have been evacuated from the village as huge cracks opened up in the town center, with steam seen rising from the ground. Much of the damage has been caused by an underground corridor of magma, or semi-molten rock, which has spread underneath the area. 
In 2010, a volcanic eruption near Grindavik caused major travel disruptions across much of Western Europe. And IBM, Apple, Disney, Lionsgate, and Paramount Global say they have suspended advertising on X, formerly known as Twitter. The company's decisions come after a report by the advocacy group Media Matters found their ads placed next to posts defending Adolf Hitler and the Nazi party. Meanwhile, ex-owner Elon Musk is under fire for endorsing a post that falsely says Jewish people push hatred towards white people. The same post appeared to endorse the far-right racist Great Replacement Theory. Ex-CEO Linda Yaccarino posted that discrimination by everyone should stop across the board. Still to come on day six, Scott Pilgrim is back, along with the superstar cast of the original movie, this time voicing an anime series. We'll meet the writers and creator of Canada's most famous slacker. It was just like a really fun, collaborative thing. That sounds like the score for an epic action movie trailer, but it's actually from a campaign for Sergio Massa, who is running to be president of Argentina. The ad shows Buenos Aires in ruins. An evil villain and his entourage lurk around the city. And then a hero rises from the rubble, calling on the people of Argentina to unite and fight for their country. The villain bears the face of Massa's political rival, Javier Millet, and the hero looks a lot like Massa. The video was created using artificial intelligence, and it's part of a surge in AI-generated content created by both sides in the election. In fact, some observers are looking at Argentina as the first major test case in how the boom in cheap, accessible AI will affect election campaigns. And many of them are worried, including Sam Altman, the suddenly former CEO of OpenAI. It's one of my areas of greatest concern, the more general ability of these models to manipulate, to persuade, uh, to provide sort of one-on-one you know, interactive disinformation. Given that we're going to face an election next year and these models are getting better, I think this is a significant area of concern. Elizabeth Dubois is a university research chair in communication at the University of Ottawa. She studies the use of digital media in politics, including artificial intelligence and media manipulation. Elizabeth, good morning. Welcome to Day 6. Good morning. Thanks for having me. What do you think of how AI has been used in the Argentinian campaign? Oh boy, it is a really interesting case. There's all of this really overt use by both of the different presidential candidates right now. And I think it's opening the door for a lot more AI use in a lot of elections that are upcoming. The fact that established, respected campaigns are making use of these tools is showing other established parties and campaigns around the world different ways that they can start thinking about integrating their use. And then I also think that it's showing activist groups and advocacy groups. It's showing other members of civil society. It's also showing folks who are parts of disinformation campaigns and the other kind of nefarious actors we think about in elections. It's showing all of them that AI is you know, on the table and up for grabs. Right. And, and it will be grabbed by both white hats and black hats going forward. But let's look at some examples of how AI has already been used in Canadian campaigns. Can you tell us a little bit about that? So far, there aren't a ton of examples, but the few that do exist really show the kind of wide range of AI use that's possible. So on the one hand, we've got the generative AI 
that is used to create synthetic content. So basically content that didn't exist before, an AI tool has been trained to make fake images or make uh, texts that can be used as speeches or campaign platforms. Hmm. And so an example here is in the Toronto mayoral election, a a nice picture of some uh, folks looking at, uh, I don't know, a policy document or something like that was incorporated into a campaign material. Turns out one of the actors in the image had three arms. It was mm. generated by AI. Yeah. Uh, then there's examples of, in that same campaign, uh, a dystopian future of what would happen if a particular candidate wasn't elected. And there's tense in rows in a park. Uh, and, and the idea was use AI to generate this image to help people imagine what it would be like if you don't vote for the right candidate. Let's look ahead right now to the American election, which is coming next year. And there may be a Canadian election the year after that. What are you anticipating? What types of AI created content do you think the public is most likely to encounter during those campaigns? Yeah. So I think these sort of generative AI examples where we see more deep fakes and then more labeled AI content of we created this vision of the future or we created this mock up of what might have happened. I think those as storytelling devices are going to be common. I also think we're going to see disinformation campaigns making use of these tools to try and confuse people and dissuade them from voting, which we know mm. for multiple election cycles now has been a problem. And then I also think we're going to see other forms of AI being increasingly incorporated. And so examples here are things like machine learning tools, which are able to analyze vast amount of personal data that campaigns collect to create more targeted advertisements, uh, to decide which ridings to pay attention to, which mm -hmm. ones to ignore, uh, and to further influence communication strategy. How hyper-targeted could a candidate's letter to me be based on the fact that AI can now write the letter and analyze the data that they have about me? Yeah, this is the thing. These tools really reduce the costs of creating individual letters for each potential voter. But in theory, a campaign could use AI tools to do just that, to send you a personalized letter that's personalized more than just dear resident, you know? Uh, mm -hmm. It could also be used to create videos that you are more likely to engage with or images that you specifically are more likely to click on on social media. Now, getting down to the exact individual level is probably unlikely, but these tools can be used in ways that are really difficult to understand. And so even if it's not at the individual level, it's still potentially quite problematic because you aren't going to know whether or not other people received the same message as you. And, and so much depends now, I guess, in, in where we are when we receive these kinds of messages. People are often hived off in silos when it comes to news consumption. If we're both using TikTok, what I'm consuming might not have anything to do with what you're taking in. If the election's no longer a shared experience, we're all looking at different media, we're all consuming different messages, how do we know which messages might or might not actually be uh, legitimate? 
we're not each individually going to be able to debunk every piece of content that comes across our screens. Instead, what we should be doing is relying on other sources, doing what is called lateral reading, so looking across a variety of different sources of information to try and triangulate in on what is actually going to be credible and what we actually do want to take on board. Do you see any signs that people are already developing that literacy, that, that they're looking at something and saying, oh, this is not real? Yeah. You know, in the context of all of the fears around social media and micro-targeting, I did some research looking at how people use their different sources of media. And what we actually find is the vast majority of the population do go and at least sometimes double check things, look for additional sources, question things, sometimes even change their mind once they've done that. That said, the generative AI shift that we're experiencing right now and in those early stages of is going to really change the volume. And right. so the question for me is less whether or not people can do it, but can people keep up with how much they need to? Obviously, we can see the threat, but do you see any benefits to these AI tools being accessible to campaigners and policymakers? And I, I mean, not, not to the people who are emitting it, but to the people who are receiving it. Is, is there any way that we as individuals will benefit? I really do think there are a lot of potential benefits here. For example, if a campaign is making use of AI tools to tailor information to fit a particular social media platform or instant messaging site in terms of the style of the content that's expected and labeling it as being AI supported, if they are using it to translate content into different languages uh, and labeling it as being AI supported, then those kinds of things could engage folks in the democratic process who would otherwise be unengaged, who wouldn't be reached. But that's not a necessary outcome of the tool use. <laughs> right. but, but it's nice to hear that it's not all a dystopia. It's up to us. AI is a little bit scary because there is this decision-making that goes beyond the initial plans that a programmer has when they're creating the tool, but mm -hmm. it's still a tool that we get to use in whatever ways we want to use. Dr. Elizabeth Dubois, thank you very much for being with us. My pleasure. Thank you. Elizabeth Dubois is a university research chair in communication at the University of Ottawa. So you thought old me would convince this me that young you was bad news and he'd send me back home and we'd break up and then one day I'd be at my local cineplex and see a preview for a movie about myself. Okay, the plan may have been misguided. I just, I had to try. I mean, he's the love of my life. Then it wasn't misguided. Did you follow all that? Because Scott Pilgrim, young Scott and old, is back. He first came to life in comic books written by Brian Lee O'Malley, and because Brian's Canadian, Scott Pilgrim is defiantly based in Toronto. Scott is a slacker who's basically never had a real job and lives in his friend's apartment. He's also the bass player in a band, but when he meets Ramona, literally the girl of his dreams, he learns he has to fight off her seven evil exes before they can have a real relationship. In 2010, the books were made into a cult hit movie called Scott Pilgrim vs. the World. 13 years later, he's back, this time in anime form. And all of the cast from the original film are back too. The eight-part series dropped on Netflix yesterday. 
Brian Lee O'Malley is the creator of Scott Pilgrim. He and Ben David Grabinski are the writers and executive producers of the new series. Brian, Ben David, good morning. Welcome to the show. Good morning. Brent, thanks for having us. Scott Pilgrim vs. the World came out, the movie, 13 years ago. And since then, the Scott Pilgrim cast have become huge actors. Kieran Culkin, Aubrey Plaza, Brie Larson, almost all of them. And yet they all decided to come back for this series. Brian, how did that happen? Uh, I I don't know. It's crazy, right? Uh, they They had a good time on the movie. I think that a lot of that's thanks to Edgar Wright, obviously. He directed it and he created yeah. a really convivial atmosphere on the set. We would all hang out uh, after hours and stuff. And um, I think we all just kind of have like fond summer camp memories of that whole thing. When they were invited, how long did it take you to nail them down? I mean, the true answer is less than three hours. Uh, <laughs> yeah, Edgar, Edgar checked. <laughs> he emailed everybody. And I always say within a matter of hours, everyone had said yes. And Edgar checked this week. And it was less than three hours before everyone had said yes in the email. That's amazing. Like, and, and you know why? Because you shouldn't run away from something you love. Right. I mean. <laughs> that's the theme of the story. Oh, that's a reference to our thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's one of the themes of, of the series that we're talking about today. But, but can we talk for a second about the intro to every episode? Because the music is amazing. The animation sequence is, is terrific. Brian, was that something that you really wanted to nail and get right? How important was that for you? It was the first thing we put in our outline was, was uh, we want to have an awesome kick-ass anime opening. That's a Japanese song and a Japanese director, and that's exactly what we got. So we, we had almost no input on it, really, other than just to say those kind of broad parameters. Yeah, our director of episode three did them, and we just wanted them to feel as authentic and as, like, the best anime credits imaginable. So we just encouraged them to make them as cool as they could. Out of the entire show, it might be the thing that we had the least involvement in. And and it sounds like you're incredibly proud of it. So take as much credit as you want. Oh, I'm all about taking credit for everything in the show. <laughs> so that's no problem. Um, and if you watch it many times, you'll get some references that maybe you didn't get the first time. But we should make it clear, this is not a continuation of the Scott Pilgrim story. It's still his story of fighting the seven evil exes. But there are new elements to the series. Ben David, there's a lot more Ramona in the series. Did you set out to dig deeper into some of the other characters? Well, that was the entire reason to do this, is our whole initial conversation was, if we're going to do this story a fourth time, including the books and the movie and the video game, we might as well try to find a new way into it. And Brian's favorite character is Ramona. I think Ramona's great. And we just wanted to come up with a story that gave us an opportunity to put her more uh, front and center this time, but also to just spend more time with everybody, including the exes. The exes were very important to me. Yeah. So there are lots of layers in this series. It, this, this is infinitely self-referential. There's a movie within the series about Scott Pilgrim, and then there's a documentary about the movie, and then it gets turned into a musical, which premieres at the Royal Alex. Hello, Toronto. <laughs> Why is it so important, Brian, for the story to be so meta? You know, what I've, what I've been thinking is, like, the original series is kind of a cultural commentary, and then when we get to this one... Scott Pilgrim is already part of culture, so I'm commenting on culture, but Scott Pilgrim is a big part of what I'm commenting on now. And uh, yeah, it was really fun to just kind of loop back again and again and just kind of, uh, you know, screw around with it. And it was, it, it just led to comedy, it led to pathos. 
some of the characters meet older versions of themselves. And I always thought that couldn't happen in time travel. Yeah, we don't care about those rules. <laughs> <laughs> I have to, well, when is the story set? Because the, the graphic novels were written in the 2000s. The movie came out in 2010. This series feels in the moment, but then there are references like renting a Netflix movie and having a DVD delivered. And then you realize this is how it used to be. So, Ben David, what year is the baseline when we're watching this? I mean, we've really committed to never being specific about it. Brian always calls it Scott Pilgrim time. <clears throat> I have no idea what's going on with my voice, but I've been talking too much about this show. Uh, <laughs> but the, we, we say it sort of takes place somewhere in between like 2005, 2010. I'm pretty sure Brian and I aren't even on the same page about it. But the important thing for me is just that it is not present day. We're trying to take well, place. I mean, and, even, yeah. Yeah, even in the movie, like, you know, Edgar used kind of outdated technology, older computers and things. Like, he didn't want it to feel too specific. So I want to kind of continue in that tradition of just, uh, it takes place in Scott Pilgrim time, in, in mythical Toronto of the imagination. Scott Pilgrim is in a, is in a band. We, talk, we talked about the music, the Japanese music in the opening sequence, but Sex Bob Bomb have their own sound as well, and they spend time watching other bands. How important is it to get the music right? Oh, it's like one of the most important things. Um, yeah, that's why we had to, we got Anamanaguchi this time doing uh, the band stuff. And then we also got them paired up with Joseph Trapadese, who's this incredible composer. He worked on stuff like Tron Legacy, where he got to uh, shape Daft Punk's music into score. Uh, and he's just uh, a brilliant guy and also the nicest guy on earth. So um, it was just like a really fun, collaborative thing. Does the music fit into that sort of elastic time uh, reference thing that you were talking about earlier? Yeah, you know, it probably does, because indie rock has kind of changed and come and gone. Um, you know, I think the younger kids are having a bit of a punk rock, indie rock resurgence right now, so maybe maybe the time is right. Um, but, you know, guitars and noise and uh, having fun jumping around on stage, I don't think that'll ever go away. Envy Adams sings a sped-up version of a Sarah McLaughlin ballad. Did you have to try to explain that to Sarah McLaughlin when you wanted to use the song? <laughs> uh, luckily, you don't have to explain that usually to people when you get it. If, if you had to explain why our songs are in the show and get permission very specifically, we never would have got any songs. <laughs> Every time we I, yeah. use a needle drop or something in this show, if you try to explain it out of context, you sound like you are uh, disconnected from reality. So I'm glad that we didn't have to because all of our songs are in very uh, peculiar <laughs> situations, I right. guess. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, yeah, it's generally it's a yes or no answer. You don't have to really send a personal essay. Although in this situation, I did have to explain it to, to Emily Haynes, who sang the song. Um, and yeah, I, I did have to kind of convince her that it would be fun to do Sir McLaughlin cover. This is Emily Haynes of Metric. So what's the relationship between Metric and the, and the Scott Pilgrim universe? Well, Metric was blowing up right around the time I was doing these books. And I just remembered seeing um, a photo shoot of them and just being really compelled by the, the character that Emily portrays. Um, you know, and, and, and she writes like songs about it. She has a song called Poster of a Girl, which kind of explains the same uh, concept as I was trying to explore with Envy Adams. But this time... Um, you know, we blow up Envy Adams into this uh, larger-than-life kind of pop star in the, in the 2010s or 2020s mold. 
Yeah, yeah. Brian, you grew up in London, Ontario. You lived in Toronto for years. Scott Pilgrim is based in Toronto, and and very much so, like defiantly, he's based in Toronto. Has the studio executive ever tried to convince you to base the story somewhere else? Um, Not me. Edgar told me that they tried to convince him to shoot it in New York for Toronto, which would have been really funny. Well, that would have Um, been kind of appropriate in a way, right? Yeah, ironic, yeah. Um, But yeah, no, he, he stuck to his guns. You know, we shot it here, and... You know, I haven't lived here in a long, long time, but the the DNA of Scott Pilgrim is is Toronto. Well, I'm really glad that Brian let me have one extended sequence in Glendale, California. But I do remember <laughs> at one point I had suggested that our final episode took place in New York. And I remember Brian being like, absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that would have been all wrong. Um, ben David, Scott Pilgrim is action-packed, but it, but it is silly it's fun it's so clever and and the characters are so lovable even even when they have glaring flaws when you two get together to work on scott pilgrim does it actually feel like work well it's a combination of something that feels not like work at all like making this was the easily the most creatively rewarding experience of my life but the problem is that most of the things that make it difficult are like self-imposed hurdles that Brian and I created just because we're very hard on it and we want it to be as great as it can be. And we don't want to repeat ourselves. And we, so we're always trying to make the episodes feel different and fresh. So it's kind of a half making each other laugh, half trying to make sure that the laughs are big enough or that maybe it needs to be more emotional than we're even thinking we just really didn't want to spend years of our life making a show and then have it just be kind of a small swing. We were hoping to try to aim a little high with it. We probably could have made our lives a lot easier and just made it a joke machine, but unfortunately <laughs> we did not. Well, when you talk about it being emotional, it is emotional and, and yet in, in no way is it ever sentimental. It, you know, when these people have feelings for each other and those feelings change, but th- that's never milked in any way. But, but you believe that the feelings are real. What, what's it like to approach the emotions in the show? It's just, we always just try to keep track of everything simultaneously. Just how entertaining can the story be? How funny can it be? How can we try to like put our life experience or like just emotional things that we've been through into the characters? But if we're trying to make something that is always still kind of irreverent and funny while doing that, it, it keeps it from becoming like too sentimental as you're saying. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think I also, I really like to downplay the emotion. Like if someone is emotional, they're not going to say exactly what they're feeling quite on the nose. Maybe that's a Canadian thing too. Of just kind of, <laughs> there's a little reserve to it. Scott and his universe and, and the people that, that are around have, have now existed in the world for a couple of decades. Who has most surprised you when they've come forward as a Scott Pilgrim fan? As a fan? Wow. I mean, the other night I got to hang out with the Daniels, who who won the Oscar last year for oh, Best wow. Picture. Um, and, you know, uh, Daniel Kwan was telling me he bought the books in college. I signed his book, his original copy of the book. Um, you know, it's crazy. You can just make a little indie comic, and 20 years later, uh, the Best Picture winner is telling you they loved it. So it's magical. It's great to watch. It's like nothing I've ever seen. And, and it's it was so much fun to talk to both of you today. Brian, Ben David, thank you for being with us. That was fun. Thanks, Brian.
Brian Lee O'Malley is the creator of Scott Pilgrim. He and Ben David Grabinski are the writers and executive producers of the new anime series, Scott Pilgrim Takes Off, which is now available on Netflix. Still to come on day six, Barbara Streisand's memoir sets the record straight, but should you read it? Hi, I'm Phelan Johnson. And I'm Leah Simone Bowen, and we look at history a bit differently. Have you ever wondered how hundreds of wild horses came to inhabit an island in the Atlantic Ocean? Or what Lord of the Rings and a small town in Manitoba have in common? Or the burning question, did Canada invent the teen drama? The Secret Life of Canada is a podcast about the country you know and the stories you don't. New episodes available now wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Brent Bambury. You're listening to Day 6 from CBC Radio. We're on public radio stations across the United States. You can listen on demand with the CBC Listen app. And we're available wherever you get your podcasts and at cbc.ca slash day6. I'm a rock star. (laughs) I laugh out loud at that too, just like I do at the... You know, being a fashion icon. Okay, Dolly, laugh all you want. The rest of us will just be over here, rocking out to your songs. It's been a year since Dolly Parton was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And this weekend, she's finally embracing her rock star status. I thought, well, if you're going to give me something, I'm going to earn it. Dolly's 49th solo studio album, Rockstar, dropped yesterday. It's her first ever classic rock record, and it is a juggernaut. We asked Maura Johnston to take us through it. She's a music critic, writer, and professor based in Boston. If I had to sum up Rockstar, the new album by Dolly Parton in a word, it would be Titanic. Let's It's a 30-song, many-cameo collection of covers and originals in which she establishes herself as somebody who can command a stage while guitars peel and fireworks go off around her. It's like the ultimate classic rock playlist. You have Let It Be. Let it be. Let it be. Let it be. Have Night Moves, the Bob Seeger song. Just working on her night moves. Trying to make some front days driving news. You have We Will Rock You, Stairway to Heaven. If there's a bustle in your head, don't be alarmed now. It's just a spring clean for the May Queen. And you know, she even heeds the constant audience call of playing Freebird. Cause I'm as free as a bird now. Which is the last song on the record and which gets a 10 minute and 45 second reinvention. You cannot change. 
And there were so many guest stars across the record. Um, Elton John. Oh, Steve Perry of Journey. Joan Jett and the Blackhearts on I Hate Myself for Loving You. And it's just a real testament to how firmly Dolly has enmeshed herself in the music business that she could get all these guests. I really like the cover of You're No Good. Feeling better now that we're through which is actually a callback to Trio, the album that Dolly put out with Emmylou Harris and Linda Ronstadt back in 1987. Harris and Sheryl Crow guest on that version of the track, which has a really nice swagger to it. You know, it's a, it's a really fun song to sing along with. I mean, a lot of these songs are super fun to sing along with. The originals on this record show how the fundamentals that she learned as a country music songwriter can be easily transferred over to rock ideals. My favorite is probably Bittersweet, which is this darkly hued neo-power ballad about a disintegrating relationship. Is it time to say hello or say goodbye? Couldn't count the countless times that we have tried. You know, country and rock have obviously been linked forever. And I think that she is showing how the lessons that she learned from life as a country star can very easily apply to rock and roll. I've paid my dues time after time. I've done my sentence but committed no crime. If there's one message that you can take away from this record, it's that Dolly can do anything. Dolly can be a movie star. Dolly can be a country star. Dolly can be a songwriter. And Dolly now can be a rock star. And it's really inspiring. She's in her late 70s and she's still wearing those coats of many colors and just showing different ones whenever she sees fit. Maura Johnston is a music critic, writer, and professor based in Boston. It strikes sand like sand on the beach. Now, how simple can you get? 
I don't know if there's anything simple about Barbara Streisand. She's an Emmy, Grammy, Oscar, and Tony Award-winning artist, and she can now add author to that list. Her memoir came out last week, and one of the things she writes about is how to say her name, because it turns out that a lot of people and devices have been saying it wrong, including Siri. I figured I'd better call Apple. I mean, the head of Apple, you know, Tim Cook. And he had Siri change the pronunciation of my name. Because when you're Barbara Streisand, you can do that. Call up the head of Apple and have them fix your name. Simple. At 81, Barbara Streisand may be a huge star, but her early life was anything but simple. Her father died when she was a baby. Her mother and stepfather were not affectionate, and her childhood was difficult. But at 16, she moved away from home and worked part-time as a theater usher so she could watch Broadway shows. And by the time she was 21, she was a star, playing Fanny Bryce in Funny Girl. It's all included in her memoir, My Name is Barbara. The book is a bestseller, but at nearly a thousand pages, it's a lot of Barbara. Should you read it? Our Day 6 Books columnist, Becky Toyne, is here with her review. Becky, good morning. Welcome back. Good morning. First, let's set the record straight. Barbara, are you a fan? I'm not a fan, but I tell you what I am a fan of is celebrity memoirs. I am partial to reading all of them, whether or not I'm a fan of the person, because if you know of the person, I'm still interested in reading about their life. Well, there was a lot of buzz about this particular celebrity memoir. There was secrecy around it. Your review copy was embargoed until the day it went on sale. And it's also an enormous tome in many, many ways. So for you, how was the experience of reading this memoir? Um, It was heavy. You know, it is nearly a thousand pages. I hate to talk about the length of a book when reviewing a book, but when your book is a thousand pages long, it's difficult not to, and it better justify that 1000 pages. But I liked it. I liked reading this book. I was nervous. I thought, oh gosh, what if it's really, really boring and I have to read a thousand pages? I liked it. And some reviews have said it is boring. It is very detailed. This is a person who has been so famous for so long. Mm. I feel she's like the queen, right? She's been famous for all of my life, almost the entirety of her life. Her face and her voice are so well known and she's prolific. She has so much to talk about. And so this book is extremely detailed about her life and work. Okay. So what are the details that you enjoyed and what are the details that you found extraneous? So I think that one reason that people enjoy, myself included, enjoy reading celebrity memoirs is because, of course, we want a bit of the gossip. We want a bit of People magazine between hardcovers. We Mm. want them to dish the dirt. My sense is that perhaps the editor on this book was probably encouraging Barbara Streisand to dish a little bit more about her personal life, about her relationships. There isn't a ton of that. Mm. Although, having said that, when you're Barbara Streisand and the list of men with whom you have been close friends or co-stars, or romantically linked includes people like Elliot Gould and Omar Sharif and Marlon Brando and Pierre Trudeau and Andre Agassi and Warren Beatty and Don Johnson. (laughs) You know, even just that list of names in and of itself feels a bit dishy. Where she is more dishy, though, she's very discreet about her sort of um, romantic relationships. She's a bit more dishy when she's being mean about certain uh, former co-stars. And so in that sense, she's dishy and gossipy when it's about the work. So Walter Matthau, Mandy Patinkin and Sidney Chaplin do not come across well in this book. She shares mm. horrible stories of their behavior towards her on set. Mm. But about the relationship, she, 
Marlon Brando, it seems like there was some tenderness there. She tells this story about Brando calling her up and asking her to sing for him. Can you tell us that story? Yeah, it is my absolute favorite moment in the book. So she had this friendship with Marlon Brando for about 30 years. And it seems that the friendship was not a sexual one, but one where there was sexual tension. Mm -hmm. And she tells the story of him calling her up one day when she's in her kitchen and asking her to sing for him. And she says, are you crazy? I don't sing in my kitchen. I don't sing in the shower. Singing is my job. That would be like me calling you and just asking you to do Shakespeare. And what does he do? Of course, he just does a soliloquy from Hamlet down the phone to her in her kitchen. And I just thought, oh, my goodness, that is the sexiest thing I've ever read. How perfect (laughs) is that? And of course, then she has to sing to him after that. Hmm. So, So she's famous for being a perfectionist to the point of the work being almost a burden to her. When she was talking about the things that bothered her about some of the the work that she's committed to vinyl or film, did did that get kind of boring or, or in the weeds? For me, it didn't. I found it really interesting. For some readers, for sure, it will. She is, I mean, what really comes across, as you say, is just this sense of her as someone who is extremely bright, very direct, very blunt, very much in control, who has this total vision of what she wants to create and isn't afraid to upset people and push boundaries a little bit in trying to achieve that. And she does go into really, really immense amounts of detail about uh, sort of thinking back on the final edit of a film and thinking about how she would change things and telling you in detail a scene that she wishes she had left in and talking about how she set up shots and that kind of thing. Some people might say, oh, come on, can we just get through this and get back to whether you might sleep with Warren Beatty? But I found it fascinating, actually. Yeah, it seems like you do think that the book needed to be nearly a thousand pages. Yeah, I, I just think when, when you're Barbara Streisand, uh, if you want to write a thousand pages about your life, you can. And, you know, this isn't the Prince Harry memoir. It's not just gossipy, gossipy, gossipy. She has had this huge life and this prolific output. Um, and so do you whiz your way through a thousand pages? Is it a page turn? No, um, you don't need to read it all. You can skip around to the movies that most interest you or the albums that most interest you or to her fundraising work for the Democratic Party if that most interests you. <laughs> and you can read in, um, you know, this is a historical document. And I think that's yeah. what she's trying to do. Were there things you didn't like about the book? I didn't like uh, as much towards the end where she does start to talk more about her politics. Uh, there, are, there, are a few, there are a few moments in the book where you're reading it and you just think, wow, you're so rich, you live on another galaxy to me. Um, I never will be able to say anything in my life like, oh, I just take my dog everywhere with me, even to the opera. Or mm-hmm. I turned up to the White House with my dog and you're not supposed to do that, but the president says what Barbara wants, Barbara gets. Or right. Siri doesn't say my name right, so I just called Tim Cook and asked him to fix it and he did, right? And there are a lot of things where you're just like, wow, you're so rich and you live on a different planet to me and I enjoy reading that. And then maybe don't enjoy so much that person and uh, telling me a lot about how I should feel about the world and about things. But, um, you know, she has uh, lived quite a life and she's been friends with some very powerful people. And she's Barbara. So I'm, I'm going to assume people who love Barbara Streisand are going to read the book anyway. So what about the readers who aren't diehard Barbara fans, people like you? Should they read My Name is Barbara? 
So I think, you know, in a way, I'm almost more nervous of recommending it to the Barbara Streisand fans because uh. as I, like, I, I'm very partial to celebrity memoirs and some of the biggest disappointments for me have been the ones by people who I love. And then mm. you read it and you think, oh, I wish I hadn't <laughs> because mm. now, now, I, now I know too much about you or I, I think of you differently. Um, so, of course, if you're a huge fan, you're going to buy this book. I'm nervous to recommend it to you just in case it changes your love for Barbara. I think that if you like celebrity memoirs, this is a really good one to read. You know, the holidays are coming up, a bit of extra time. This would look beautifully wrapped under the tree. And I think if you are, um, you know, I could see myself giving this to someone who is an aspiring um, artist, an aspiring filmmaker, actor, performer, just to really get a sense of how someone um, as successful as Barbara Streisand kind Mm -hmm. of the drive behind that and what it took for her to get where she is. Becky Toyne, thank you very much. Thank you. Becky Toyne is our Day 6 Books columnist. My Name is Barbara is out now. And if you want to hear Pia Chattopadhyay's interview with Barbara Streisand, you can find it at cbc.ca slash Sunday or on the CBC Listen app. Time, weather, and... Rift from the headlines. And here it is, Riff from the Headlines. This is our weekly quiz. Three riffs linked by one story in the news. If you guess the story that links the riffs, you could win a day six tote bag. First, here's a recap. This is last week's clue. Oh, Canada by Classified, Pink Floyd with another brick in the wall, and Ed Sheeran featuring Camila Cabello and Cardi B with South of the Border. And Jordan Remedios of Halifax guessed the headline that we're looking for. Republican candidate Vivek Ramaswamy proposes building a wall on the border with Canada. Congratulations, Jordan. A day six tote bag will be on its way to you soon. Now, here's this week's clue. Check it. Sucker MCs could never swing with D. Because of all the things that I bring with me. Only G.O.D. could be a king to me. And if the G.O.D. be in me, then a king I'll be. Bitcoin that you toss for heads or tails. Bitcoin you let slip down the drain. Bitcoin didn't find where it landed. Bitcoin, Bitcoin. And we're looking for the story that connects those riffs. Email us your answer. Put riff from the headlines in the subject. Send it to day6 at cbc.ca. And please include your mailing address. One right answer will be picked at random. The prize is a day6 tote bag. You can always hear the clues again anytime at cbc.ca slash day6. On your show. Time, weather, and... from the headlines.
And that's our show for this week. Day 6 was produced by Lori Allen, Annie Bender, Mickey Edwards, and Pedro Sanchez. Our digital producer is Paul Hentiuk. Our senior producer is Gord Westmacott. And I'm Brent Bambury. It's five days to American Thanksgiving, one day to the Grey Cup, and seven days till we meet again on Day 6. I'm a rock star. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.